Hello everyone, I'm Rania Kalik and this is Dispatches. As the furnace of war burns in Ukraine, we know that battles are taking place, soldiers are dying, towns and cities are being attacked, millions of civilians are fleeing their homes, and lives and dreams are being destroyed. As for the battlefield, once the war started, we entered the fog of war. This might be the worst covered war in modern history. We have no idea who lost how many men and tanks and planes. We have no idea who's really winning or losing. Either side's narrative could be true. Western news reports are heart-wrenching, but they don't add to our understanding or knowledge. They tell us that civilians are suffering, and they appeal for more weapons. Only when the war is over will we slowly understand what took place after February 24th, 2022. But even then, without the benefit of understanding history, we won't know why it happened. The war in Ukraine didn't begin this year, but in 2014, and the narrative of those days is shrouded in mythology. The West wants heroes and villains, but they don't want their heroes to also be Nazis. So they forget the numerous reports and documentaries in mainstream Western media about the radical extremist militias in Ukraine and their control over the street in the 2014 coup. To help make sense of it all and place this war and the Ukrainian extreme right in its historical context, I'm joined by Tariq Cyril Amar, a historian from Germany who's currently Associate Professor of History at Koch University in Istanbul, working on Russian, Ukrainian, and generally East European history. He also speaks Russian and Ukrainian and has lived in Ukraine for a total of five years, three of which as the head of the Center for Urban History of East Central Europe in the city of Lviv. Tariq, welcome. Hi, how are you? I'm good and I'm so happy to have you. So I guess, Tariq, you know, as I said in the introduction, Ukrainian nationalism has always been dangerously intertwined with fascism. And your academic background includes writing on Ukraine during World War II. So I think a good place to start would be, can you discuss the origins of right-wing nationalism in Ukraine? And then we can uh, talk more about today after we talk about history a little bit. So yeah, what are its origins? Yes, so the origins of the the right-wing traditions of Ukrainian nationalism, right, um, are, really go back to the period between the two world wars. Obviously, you know, among historians and others as well, people like to play around with, with periodization, and uh, some people would probably suggest some earlier roots, but I think the consensus is, and it's rightly, that um, it really starts between the two wars. And um, the most, the single most, for this type of modern right-wing nationalism that we're talking about now, right? And the single most important region for this is what is now Western Ukraine. And that is a part of Ukraine that after World War I, uh, to a large extent, ends up in Poland and under Polish control. And um, that, disappointment of not having their national aspirations satisfied by the post-World War I order radicalizes a generation of Ukrainian nationalists. And as you can imagine, once you're looking at the interwar period, you're also looking at a period in which in other countries, uh, extreme right politics, including fascism and then Nazism, both belong of course together, are on the rise. So what you find within a certain amount of time, it really works quite quickly, is that these disappointed 
nationalists who are not happy with what happened after World War I, like many other nationalists in other places, look around themselves and they start looking at the Italian and then the German cases and they begin to feel inspired by that, right? And that's where you begin to get this really quite direct interaction with specifically Italian fascism and then also German Nazism. And, you know, you also worked on Ukraine under the Soviets. You've done work on that as well. So I'm wondering if you could maybe give us an idea of the Ukrainian experience uh, under the Soviet Union and how Ukraine fared uh, during those times. So the integration of Ukraine into the Soviet Union is really an outcome most directly of the civil war that happens in the former Russian Empire after the Russian Revolution. So we're talking about the civil war that sort of lasts of 1918-2021. These are usually the years given. And um, Ukraine undergoes an extremely complicated history in this period with various warring factions, with various foreign powers being active, including very much at the beginning of the period, still the Austro-Hungarians and the Germans also being in the mix. And in the end, one cannot really recapitulate this extremely difficult history and complicated history, but in the end, the Bolsheviks emerged victorious. But mm -hmm. one thing one has to understand about this is that while they have local support, as other movements have as well, um, it is the outcome of a struggle, right? So the, the Soviet Ukraine that emerges is in part something that comes from below, but also it is very much something that is a result of the civil war and the result of fighting going that way and not another way. So that once you have the Soviet Ukraine, um, you are looking at a state in which the Bolsheviks for a number of years, roughly speaking the 1920s, uh, practice a policy that they call, um, um, that, that they call the routing of Soviet power. And by that they mean that colonization, right? And that literally means the rooting of power. And by that they mean that they want to find local support by finding, uh, by articulating their ideas in Ukrainian through their version of Ukrainian culture and so on. I'm summarizing, but that's the first Bolshevik approach after the civil war. And that policy then by the end of the 20s, early 1930s is abandoned in exchange for something much more authoritarian again. The Bolsheviks are never liberals, but you know, there are differences in the degree of authoritarianism that they practice mm. and much less conciliatory towards these local forces. That's an all Soviet phenomenon, but Ukraine is one of the most important places where this happens. At the same time, so you then see massive attacks on the Ukrainian intelligentsia, even on the Ukrainian Bolsheviks or the Ukrainian party, right? Purges mm. and so on. And of course, more or less at the same time, we also have the occurrence of the famine of 1932-33, which is a whole different chapter. But for now, let's just say that when you take all of this together, the interwar period under the Soviet Union for Ukraine is initially, after the Civil War, not as bad as you would imagine, but turns into something very violent and tragic by around 1930. Mm. And then, of course, you already begin to enter sooner or later into the experience of World War II, which is, again, a different topic to talk about. Well, let's talk about that, because, 
you know, Ukraine, there seems to be a lot of revisionist history taking place uh, in Ukraine around World War II, the sort of resurrection, a lot of these uh, former or a lot of these, you know, Ukrainian nationalists that collaborated with the Nazis at the time being kind of glorified as heroes now. So what did happen during World War II in terms of those in Ukraine who did collaborate with the Nazis? Yes. So, um First of all, you're absolutely right. There is um, a major sustained drive uh, to embellish uh, the history of this type, of this period of Ukrainian nationalism, right? When we're really specifically talking now about the period of the war, let's date it 39 to 45, then of course inside that you have the war between strictly speaking the Germans and the Soviets, 41 to 45, but those are the years we're talking about. And you have now in Ukraine and also outside Ukraine um, a very strong drive to pretend that Ukrainian nationalism at the time uh, was a force resisting both outside invaders equally, right? This Mm. is sort of a symmetry idea that these Ukrainian nationalists stood up for Ukraine and they stood up equally against the Germans, the Nazis in other words, and against the Soviets who at this time were Stalinists. This is nonsense. This is historic Mm. This is absolute nonsense. This is not discussable, actually, although it's widespread. In reality, Ukrainian nationalism during the war um, tries to collaborate intensively with Nazi Germany. The collaboration is less successful, in quotation marks, than the nationalists want, because initially the Germans are so arrogant that they're basically saying to these guys, we don't need you, right? We don't want to share power with you. But nevertheless, even uh, in spite of this initial falling out, which happens in the summer of 1941, the story isn't over. And what you will find is a very complicated pattern in which the Ukrainian organized nationalists and the Nazis are not at all the same thing. But again and again, Ukrainian nationalists find or think that they share interests with the Germans or that certain aspects of German rule can work in their favor if they know how to use it. And that leads to um, partial collaboration in the Holocaust. Again, a a topic that, um, as I know from a lot of personal experience, some Ukrainians even now just don't want to hear about, and yet it is true. It is simply a historical truth. There is a partial cooperation between Ukrainian nationalists and Germans in the Holocaust. Ukrainian nationalists do not cause the Holocaust. The the Germans cause the Holocaust, right? That's Mm -hmm. where the decisions are made. But some of them, enough of them to be a serious problem as a legacy, do participate. And then others simply find it very attractive and like the results. And we know this from some of the wartime writings. They have their own tradition of anti-Semitism, which is not always exactly the same as what the Nazis produced. That's true. If you delve into this in very much detail, you can see certain um, certain, um, differences, but it is close enough to make them cooperate. And moreover, you sometimes get cases where Ukrainian nationalists even act proactively against Jews on their own even Mm -hmm. in regions where Germans are either not there yet or thin on the ground, right? This also occurs. So um, that is a great uh, burden for those who try 
to produce this extremely whitewashed, extremely embellished myth now, in which these nationalists are these pure and simple and innocent heroes. No, they're not. Uh, it's a much more complicated and, and a much darker story. Another thing that also, of course, happens is that they conduct their own massive ethnic cleansing campaign against Poles, and they do this mm. very deliberately. Uh, this is a planned operation. Um, one of the best young historians who's worked on this is a guy called Jared McBride, who's now in California. He's researched this in great detail. And what he shows you very clearly is that this apologetic idea that some people are spreading, that this is just a grand melee. You know, the Poles and the Ukrainians, it's war, everything is chaotic, everybody somehow starts killing each other, is not true. That would be bad enough, but it's not true. It is a targeted, planned, deliberate operation by a political force. And the political force that does this and wants this from 1943 onwards and into 1944 is precisely the organized Ukrainian nationalists, specifically those of the Bandera wing. Mm -hmm. So these are two big issues that cast enormous shadows over the history of World War II Ukrainian nationalism. That in itself wouldn't be you know, things like that happened, unfortunately, in a lot of places in Europe, right. right? Exactly. What makes this so virulent now and so disturbing is precisely the fact that there are such strong forces in and outside Ukraine who simply don't want to acknowledge this. This is the real issue, right? Right. No, and it is. It's incredibly disturbing. And then you have kind of like a a, a Western whitewashing uh, mm. as well of, of the fact that these figures are being praised and held up and glorified. But you're absolutely right. I mean, this happened all across Europe, the collaboration with the Nazis for various local reasons. Um, and in the case of Ukraine, it is interesting how it isn't discussed or, or addressed how there was these massacres of Poles that were quite deliberate, like you mentioned. But, you know, I want to move around in history here. I do want to go back to that. But I'm curious if we can move towards, I guess, the 90s. Um, mm. To what extent can we blame, do you think, today's conflict on how Ukraine became an independent country after the collapse of the Soviet Union? Or That's can a, we? I don't know. <laughs> uh, no, it's a good question. It's a very difficult question, I think. Um, let me think. Look, um, the fact that, I, I would put it the following way. The fact that there is a crisis, right, that involves Russia and Ukraine, um, partly really does come out of the way, not only how Ukraine, uh, of how Ukraine became independent at the end of the Soviet Union in 91, but I would say more generally how the Soviet Union dissolved mm -hmm. and also what happened to Russia at the time, right? So there are certain lines going back into the 90s and really specifically to 1991, if you want. Um, but I would like to stress, I think that can help you to an extent, and this is not the whole picture, but to an extent it can help you explain why there is some of the tension that now has taken this absolutely tragic turn, right? Mm -hmm. But I would resist an explanation that says you get from there to the war, right? To get to this war, to this enormous bloodletting, uh, that, that's a different story again. And much that has to do with that is, I think you have to look for roots, of course, in Russia, 
but you also have to look for roots in international politics that go beyond Ukraine and Russia to understand how you get from a set of difficult issues that would have created a lot of, you know, maybe debate, complications, tension, some conflict to this horrific war, which is a very right. different issue, right? That's true. And I guess just to be a little bit more specific here, I guess this kind of isn't just this goes beyond Ukraine and Russia, maybe not, you know, internationally, but it's connected to that. But, you know, when did the post-Soviet right wing nationalisms that we see today, when did those emerge? Because it's not just in Ukraine. Mm. You have it in a lot of post-Soviet countries. Yes. Um, So I I think you can even frame this a little more widely, very plausibly, Mm. which is. Uh, you, you can either look strictly at post-Soviet countries, so countries that literally once belonged to the Soviet Union, were part of it, the Baltics, Ukraine. Uh, but you can also, of course, look at countries that never belonged to the Soviet Union, but, but were part of its sphere, of its sphere mm-hmm. of control, right? So say that gives you Poland or Hungary, right? That's a different issue again. But actually, when you look at the rise of far-right discourse, nationalist discourse, nationalist revisionist history discourse, right? These places have a lot in common. So it's not just the strictly post-Soviet, it's this whole former, if you use the old Cold War term, it's the whole area of the former Soviet bloc in Mm. Europe, right? Where you Mm. find these phenomena. And when did it begin? Um, That I, you know, in a way, some of it began uh, even before the Soviet Union dissolved, you know? if you look, for instance, just to give a specific example, if you look at the history of Polish anti-Semitism, right, which plays a role even now, Polish anti-Semitism is quite active during the communist period. It's up and down, and it depends on how it's articulated. And sometimes the regime, the communist regime, actually tries to co-opt it at the end of the 1960s. That's a particular virulent period, for instance, right? So in part, some of these things have never been entirely away. They've been sort of underground or flowing along Mm. in their own little channels, but it wasn't that they were completely repressed or that they had ceased to exist, right? There are older traditions at work here. The other thing is, of course, that there is a Cold War history in the West. Ukrainian nationalism, an excellent example of that, where you have a very strong Cold War diaspora, right? And here you have to be very careful because I really don't want to stereotype the Ukrainian diaspora, which would be very unfair. The Ukrainian diaspora has a long history, and some of it's actually very left-wing. Mm. But what you see after the cold, after the world, um, the Second World War, during the Cold War, is that politically, and I would say to an extent in terms of discourse, culturally, right, the Ukrainian diaspora in North America especially, and I mean Canada and the United States here, <laughs> but not only, is really taken over by the right wing. And to an extent, even by the far right. And that's a story that's still going on. So when the Soviet Union collapses and Ukraine becomes independent, it also opens up to this diaspora, this organized diaspora, not all of them. Again, I want to draw a distinction, but getting their way back into Ukraine and sort of it's almost like a time capsule, bringing their sort of frozen right wing politics (laughs) back into 1990s Ukraine. However, specifically to a question, and and here I'd like to focus on Ukraine. When Mm -hmm. does this get really virulent? Um, The 90s, I wouldn't say so, not really. I would say you would have to go into the 2000s 
And think about the so-called orange revolutions, which happen, uh, orange revolution, which happens in 2004-5, essentially, right at the turn of the year. Then, that doesn't yet lead to a massive right-wing mobilization the way that 2013-14 has. So mm -hmm. it goes in these, in these, in the Ukrainian case, I would say inside Ukraine, it goes in these leaps, right? And what we've seen since 2014 is really quite unprecedented. What we did have before, already under presidents like Yushchenko, who came out of the Orange Revolution 2004-05, is um, a very clear rise, even a surge in this official history revisionism. So, for instance, that's the period already when you see Ukrainian state authorities saying, oh, let's make Stepan Bandera the head of this extremely problematic Ukrainian nationalist organization, the most important one of World War II, let's make that him an official hero, right? And when these sort of same for a guy who's Shukhevich, who's a military commander, I mean, we could go into details. But the history of visionism, that starts really after 2005 to really take off. But what happens then after 2014, what has happened now is a different story again, I would say. Yeah, no, that's a really, I know it's very complicated and you can't point to just one thing, but that's a, that's a really good uh, explanation. And, you know, just, you mentioned Stefan Bandera. We have so many names that we see people calling these various militias, right-wing militias uh, in Ukraine. You have, you know, they're called neo-Nazis. They're called the extreme right. Sometimes they're called Banderists. So like, what is the, can you kind of just give us a layout right now today? Mm. What is yeah. the current makeup of the different right-wing factions? Um, we hear of the Azov Battalion a lot, for example. Mm. And what is their, you know, if not one, but different ideological tendencies? How would you describe them? What's the proper terminology here? Yeah. Um, let, let me say something about myself and what, what I do to, to solve that problem <laughs> or maybe just to sort of mitigate the problem. I often just call it the far right. And that's okay. not because I think that's a very good term. That's because I use it as an umbrella term because what you've pointed out is absolutely true. Um, they have in common their far right, but there are also quite a lot of differences. There's a bit of an ecosystem, right? Now, one thing about Azov um, as uh, one of the journalists who has worked uh, intensively on Azov over, over the, you know, for several years now, I think 2018, 2016 is when he must have started, uh, Michael Colborn, who is a Canadian, has just brought out a book in a fairly obscure publisher, which is a shame because it's probably, I haven't read it yet, but it's probably an important book. And what he said in an interview about Azov strikes me as absolutely right, which is that Azov is by now by far the most important far-right force in Ukraine. It dwarfs the others, right? And mm. insofar as there are others, and there are others, they have to sort of negotiate with Azov, and there are very few who still try to do their own thing, even against Azov. That's very, very hard by now. Azov is the biggest story here, right? But it's mm -hmm. not alone. You also have organizations such as uh, they call themselves Freikorps. There's one that actually calls itself Freikorps, <laughs> alluding, of course, literally to extremely right-wing reactionary uh, military units fighting in Germany after they lost the war, after they lost World War One, and that played a role in the rise of Nazism. Right, Freikorps to Nazism. Yes, there is a line. Right, um, Freikorps. You have uh, Tradition and Order is another small organization. You have something called Capetian Siege 
you have uh, a very obnoxious, I mean, they're all obnoxious, <laughs> but you have a, <laughs> another very obnoxious outfit called C14, right? And I'm sure I haven't enumerated them all. So it's, it's, quite, it's quite a scene which is dominated by now by Azov, right? One thing we need to say here is that when I say Azov, Azov is much more than the Azov Battalion. The Azov Battalion is a military unit, as we know, uh, with, with its own big problems, I would say. But um, it's actually, you know, it's about 900, 1,000 people. It's difficult to count because they're expanding apparently right now, but it's not enormously large, right? Um, at the same time, Azov as a whole encompasses now much, much more than that. It encompasses something called the National Corps, and sometimes mm -hmm. you find also the name National Corpus, uh, which is a political party. It encompasses a national militia. Uh, it has uh, sub-organizations, it has an extremely virulent and nasty youth organization called the Wotan Jugend. <laughs> Actually, it doesn't sound like civilian. a I don't know what that means, I don't even know what that <laughs> well, means, but it, it sounds ominous. <laughs> It sounds ominous. But, I mean, it's an allusion to, you know, Wotan, of course, is, is a Nordic god. So, you know, Nazis tend to be into Nordic gods. Right. And, um, and Jugend is an allusion. It's a German word for use, but here it's an allusion clearly to Hitler Jugend, right? Wotan Jugend. I mean, there's no two ways of thinking about this. They're thinking mm. Hitler Jugend. And they love Hitler and Wotan Jugend very, very clearly. I mean, Wotan Jugend are... Oof. Wotan Jugend makes the others look... <laughs> Moderate, and they aren't moderate. Wow. <laughs> so wow. there's a whole system here, right? Mm -hmm. um, but what what is there? For me, the main question is to come back to to your initial class. What do we call them, right? I would say some of them are literally neo-Nazis. Some mm -hmm. of them, very important, I would describe as white supremacists. That's uh, a very strong line by now. And that also has to do with the way that they're going international. So it's a very important sort of bridge for them, the white yeah. supremacist identity that they also have, which of course neo-Nazis and white supremacists overlap anyhow, right? Mm -hmm. But if you want to sort of slice it, some of them are sort of identitarians, right? Some of them see themselves as, you know, I came across this wonderful term some of them used uh, recently, um, national traditionalism. And, okay. <laughs> and, and believe me, they mean it in a, in a very national way. And the traditions they imagine. have in mind, uh, you know, I, I like tradition, but I don't think they mean the traditions I have in mind. <laughs> right. It's not so about food. It's not about preserving foods. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely not. So right. there, there, are different sorts, um, there are also different influences. You know, some mm. of them, for instance, Azov has been very strongly influenced by the French Nouvelle Droite which is mm. partly, you know, the nouveau, the, the new right, the French movement that sort of has already existed for several decades now, has played an enormously important role in the way that some of Azov's people, sort of the intellectuals of Azov, think about Azov and what they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's, it's quite the, the makeup you have there. And I guess... When we hear, you know, everybody, everybody in the West and the media saying, oh, it's just Russian propaganda, it's just Russian propaganda. But no. over the years, even before this new war, obviously, these groups didn't just emerge now. They've no. existed from before. And mm. the U.S. was arming. We know that the U.S. has been arming the Ukrainians for years. And in particular, in Congress, there were even bills that were put forth to prevent uh, weapons mm. from getting into the hands of the Azov Battalion because yes. we know that weapons were getting into the hands of the Azov Battalion. So when we do hear, oh, the U.S. is arming neo-Nazis in Ukraine, 
Is that true or is that just Russian propaganda? How would you how would you frame that accusation? No. Let me say one thing, which is not a direct answer to your question. I'll get back to it, but it's related mm -hmm. to it. So, I, I mean, the biggest propaganda lie on the Russian side, right, is the idea that Russia has to come into what they call denazify Ukraine, right? Right. And, you know, it's, it's, it's almost banal, but let's make it explicit. That's a big fat lie. Right? There are many ways in which this is a lie, but we can go on about this. But once you're beyond this, if anyone in the West reacts by saying, because that's a big fat lie, therefore there is no issue, no special and disturbing issue with the Ukrainian far right, they are dead wrong, absolutely mm -hmm. wrong. So that's the complication here, right? The Russians are abusing this phenomenon and they're distorting it and they're doing all the things that they do in propaganda, but the phenomenon underneath this is real. And right. it's a threat, most of all, by the way, to Ukraine and Ukrainians, right? So you're not doing Ukraine a favor, as some people think, by being silent about this, right? So here's the problem. Have, has the U.S., your specific question, ended up arming uh, the far right in Ukraine? For instance, Azov. As you mentioned, I think it was 2018, right? I might get the year wrong, but there, there was Something actually... Something like that. Yeah, yeah, there was there was an intervention by Congress taking the shape of law, I think, which should have made that impossible, right? Um, I have to say, I, I think they did the right thing. I, I'm glad they tried, but I don't think it can have worked because mm -hmm. the situation in Ukraine simply has been far too fluid for that. You know, Azov, by that time, had been integrated as part of uh, the interior ministry, Right, the Interior Ministry, not the Ministry of Defense, the Interior Ministry that runs something called the National Guard. Azov became, I think already in 2014, officially a unit of the National Guard, or I should be precise, the military arm, right? The Azov Battalion became a unit of the National Guard. Now, some people have abused this fact to argue, um, for instance, Anton Shekhovtsov, who is a much quoted expert on the Ukrainian far right, which I consider highly unreliable. I think he has oh. to be, <laughs> I'm sorry, I, you know. It's to be, That's good I, to know. <laughs> well, uh, you know, um, and what he's doing, he's basically saying again and again, uh, among other things on the Atlantic Council by now, that, you know what, once these guys became officially a unit under the control of the interior ministry, that means, he literally has said this, they, they were depoliticized. <laughs> this is nonsense. It's complete nonsense. It's also, well, it was picked up by the Financial Times recently, this insane quote and claim. Jeez. It's it's complete nonsense, and it's also not the consensus of experts. If you read mm. Michael Colborn, if you read perhaps the, the single best Ukrainian expert on this, Oleksiy Kuzmenko, who's far too little known in the West and has done excellent work on the far right in Ukraine, it is very, very clear that Azov has not depoliticized. And it's a classical wag the dog situation, you know. Azov actually has probably colonized a part of the state. It's not the state who has made Azov un-Azov. That's wow. what happened here. So, of course, um, American lawmakers can try, and I'm glad they tried, to keep, for instance, javelins out of the hands of Azov. But recently, during the war, as you would expect, we've seen a lot of visual evidence of Azov fighters with javelins. I mean, right. what, you, what would happen in a war, right? And I'm sure it also was going on before the war. 
And while uh, you had attempts not to train Azov people, for instance, at that famous center in Yavoriv in Western Ukraine, that base that the Russians a few weeks ago attacked with cruise missiles, which was the, the most important NATO training hub in Ukraine, literally training battalions, one after the other for the Ukrainian army. So, um, yeah, you can say officially, we don't want Azov people in this program. Well, first of all, somebody who really wants to get in finds a way in, and his Ukrainian friends will help. Right. And secondly, the people you train may also transfer to Azov. They may work with Azov. There is, you cannot create this sort of need separation, right? Once mm -hmm. you arm, yes, it's very likely that your arms also will end up with these more radical, or very radical forces. And the reason is that the Un Ukrainian state has not drawn a line. Right? If the Ukrainian state had said, we don't want these people, we demobilize them, it's over, we don't want a unit like that, then maybe you would have a chance of doing that. But since they're part of the de facto existing Ukrainian military forces and a quite important part for years now, how do you, how do you cut them off? Of course you can't yeah. cut them off. That's not realistic. It's not happening. Yeah, it's a definitely magic thing. Like it's, it's it's kind of like Syria when they would say, yeah, we're just going to arm the moderates and then somehow weapons would just end up in the hands of Al-Qaeda because at the end of the day, whoever's the strongest force on the ground is going to be the one those weapons go to. And if Azov is one of the strongest forces, which they seem to be, they, they are a very strong force on the ground in various places. So weapons, of course, are going to end up in their hands. There is no way to prevent that or like you said, to neatly, you know, segregate who no. gets weapons and who doesn't, no. right? Um, yeah, go ahead, Sorry, sorry if we wanted to I mean, that. it gets even more complex, right? Recently, the, this uh, young Ukrainian, young sort of Ukrainian researcher I just mentioned, Kuzmenko, who was great and people should really read his stuff. He has said something very important, I think in a Newsweek article, he, he pointed out that, look, there's the Azov Battalion, which is this more or less discrete military force, right? There's one box and it says Azov Battalion and those are the guys in there and their equipment. But there are also people who identify as Azov movement, remember they're much bigger than just the battalion, who now are actually inside the territorial defense units, right? And once that happens, there's of course absolutely no way of controlling for that. Secondly, something that needs to be mentioned here as well is that um, Azov has made proactive efforts to infiltrate other parts of the Ukrainian military, very proactive. Conspiratorial, right? And uh, the, the shape this has taken is to work through um, one of the main military academies of Ukraine, perhaps the single most important one, where you know a lot of officers are produced, which is in Lviv. And what they've done there is they've basically set up a sales structure under the name of a different organization. That organization calls itself Centuria. <clears throat> They're the ones who describe themselves as national traditionalists, by the way. <laughs> <clears throat> and what they do, first they did it quite openly. They've been around for a few years, and then they became quieter because they realized that they were too open. But what they do is they try to find um, kindred minds among officers and people on the way to becoming officers and build sort of a network inside the military. And wow. then when they place their people commanding specific units, once they graduate, they literally, so Telegram and other social media, go online. They don't do it that openly anymore, but they did for two or three years at the beginning. And they send out a message and say, if you're a Ukrainian soldier and you share our values, which are very far right, try mm -hmm. to get to that unit. 
because that's commanded by one of our guys. You see where this is going, right? So yes, you're building yeah. basically, you're, you're building these cells within the military and it's very deliberate. It's very clear what they're doing. They know exactly what they're up to. It's not mere propaganda. That's actually infiltration, literally. And again, if you want to read up on this, Kuzmenko wrote a report about it and, and it's excellent, right? It's, it's really very, very clear. It was so clear that then the next thing, this is why I mentioned this actually, the next thing that happens, you get these people who are linked to Azov through this secondary structure, Centuria, and who are these officer recruits. And then you have a program, they say literally um, the British, the Canadian, the Germans are training Ukrainian officers, sometimes a lot, sometimes a little, sometimes it's a two-week class with like the Germans, Offizierschule des Heeres, which is a thing. Sometimes it's nine months at Sandhurst in Britain, mm -hmm. right? And you have cases, literally cases, I'm sure we don't know all of them, of precisely these Centuria guys going through these programs. So there you have it. You have future officers of the Ukrainian army who may go very far, literally being trained by the prime military training institutions of the West, of certain countries in the West, of NATO, if you want, Mm -hmm. And they don't know who they are even dealing with. And when they were contacted after this report came out and asked, you know, are you looking at who you're actually training? The answer was, no, we don't, because that's the Ukrainians do that, right? So basically, oh the Ukrainians didn't have control and maybe didn't want control. And those Western partners, the Germans, the British and the Canadians in this case, were all like, no, it's not our job. <laughs> so, and there oh you have an God. outcome. That's unbelievable. Wow. That's um, a specific thing. This has all been very well illustrated. You know, we, we know this. This is <laughs> clear. You know, it's I, I wanted to ask you about the whitewashing of everything that you're describing because and you you've been tweeting about this quite a bit. You even you even tweeted that the media is teaching us to love the Ukrainian far right. Um, and let me see. So I've, I was having trouble with StreamYard, but it looks like it's like working a little bit now. So let me try to share this because I actually want to share these headlines if possible. Um, here we go. These are some mainstream media headlines. Uh, basically, this is the Times. Uh, and I'll mm -hmm. just, for those who, who are, are just listening to this as a podcast, I'll read out the headline. It says, Azov Battalion, quote, we are patriots. We're fighting the real Nazis of the 21st century. And then it goes on to say, Catherine Phillip finds an elite battalion challenging its far-right reputation. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then you have um, the Financial Times. The headline says, don't confuse patriotism and Nazism. Uh, mm -hmm. Ukraine's Azov forces face scrutiny. And then it goes on to say, nationalist regiment with neo-Nazi roots has been instrumental in the resistance to the Russian invasion to russia's invasion and we've seen a lot of articles like this that are essentially you know trying to downplay uh what you know is clearly this like far-right ideology that these people abide by and i i don't want to show it now just because like i said Streamyards being a little mm. glitchy but there is i wanted to show this clip but i'll just kind of describe it there was this this al jazeera international uh report that was aired about one neo-Nazi militia having an image problem. That was how it was, it was Azov. But basically mm -hmm. like Azov has an image problem and you have this reporter who's like sitting down with an Azov 
commander or leader and is asking mm. him like, what are you going to do about your image problem? Yeah. An image problem rather than like an ideology problem mm. or perhaps a problem with its actions. So I guess what's your response to these very blatant efforts, I think, to try to frame these far right extremist groups as not actually being scary, but really just being like resistance that's maybe more moderate than we initially thought. Like, what do you, what's your response mm -hmm. to that attempt by the media? Mm. Yeah, look, um, extremely critical. Um, I think it's a phenomenon that we know from the history of the Cold War, and not only, but the Cold War comes to mind, mm. where um, in that confrontation, um, you make allies de facto allies, helpers, auxiliaries, whatever you call it, out of extremely unsavory forces. And since you want that so very much, essentially for geopolitical and military reasons, you then rationalize it. I, I think mm. this is what happened, what's happening in the case of Azov. Um, and that's why I'm so angry with people who tout this line and who simply pretend that Azov has changed. Uh, in reality, it's, it's Azov is changing over time, but there are at least as many reasons to assume that it's getting worse in terms of far-right ideology than it's getting better, right? The second, um, for instance, Corborn again, the Canadian journalist who's just brought out the book, um, that's his argument, and I, I trust him on that. Uh, his argument is, no, actually what's happening inside the Azov battalion is that you have younger people who are actually not happy with the older people because the older people are too moderate in their view. And those old people were not wow. moderate. Those old people are people like Andriy Belitsky, the original, one of the original founders, who is, you know, I mean, as, as far right as you can possibly imagine, who believes in like a mission to save the white race, uh, to rebuild European civilization, who yeah, was heavy on the anti-Semitism in the beginning, but he's toned that down a little bit recently. So this, this is a very, very seriously far-right route already. And this assumption that these guys have become milder is based on nothing. It's based on one thing, on our wishful thinking in the West, because, hey, once we want these guys as allies, how can they be so bad? That's sort of uncomfortable. Nobody likes cognitive dissonance. And right. the other thing, apart from visual thinking, is their strategies of PRing themselves. And this is a very important point. And it's it's a bit of an obsession of mine, but no, a bugbear, which is I see so much comment on the Ukrainian far-right phenomenon, which is incredibly naive. I, You know, look, I'm also a historian, but I'm very much a historian of the Soviet Union. And I know this, this term, the useful idiots of the communists, of the Bolsheviks, right? Where people travel to Stalin's Soviet Union in the early 1930s when things are really bad in many ways and come back and write these reports like, I saw the country where everything works. I saw a working tractor, the nursery, it's, you know, the kindergarten. <laughs> And so deservedly by now, you know, some people like Arthur Kessler, who later became a huge Western cold warrior, of course, was very seriously on that side back then. Oh. But those are my ironies. So we call these people useful idiots, right? And we blame them for two things. First of all, being idiots. And secondly, probably <laughs> wanting to be idiots. Wanting to be idiots, which is worse, right? Mm. And I see that now. I see a useful idiotism of the Ukrainian far right. <laughs> to use naive articles 
where you interview these guys who are really not stupid, who are quite savvy by now, who look abroad, who understand much more about Western discourses than these guys who interview them understand about them, right? It's a very asymmetric yeah. situation. <laughs> and who basically bamboozle them. And these reporters or journalists or whatever very often let themselves be bamboozled, right? Wow, um, yeah. I'll give you an extreme case. I'll give you an ex if you want an example, right? There is... Um, a major spokesperson, she's very young, um, of the Azov movement, not the battalion, the movement. Her name is Olena Semenyaka. Um, mm. She's sort of the, I don't know, the iron lady <laughs> of the she Ukrainian. Like the, she like the Jen Psaki of the Ukrainians, like that kind of spokesperson, like the sort of like press secretary. No, you know? I, look, I, 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 I very, <laughs> it's very hard for me to say something positive about Semenyaka, but I think she's a little <laughs> more, um, she has a little more of a, her own personality. Let me put oh, it like this. <laughs> wow, okay, all right. But, so she's good at what no, she does. She's good at what she does. But the question is, yeah. what sort of personality? Okay, Semenyaka yeah. is somebody who, about a decade ago, uh, literally did a Hitler Hitler salute at a party holding Ooh. a swastika flag, right? Wow, what a, and, what a lady. And by now she's saying that was ironic. This is very, very fashionable on the Ukrainian far right. They do a lot of ironic stuff, you know, ironic <laughs> Ironic fascism, ironic, ironic ruins. It's very ironic. Yeah. They're very postmodern. <laughs> but anyhow, so she does that. And then, which is perhaps even more important because it has much more effects, she becomes, over recent years, the, I would say the key figure for Azov's international outreach. Her office is called that. She's either Western outreach or international outreach. And she's very influenced, again, by Nouvelle Droite in, in France, by this sort of French post-war attempt to invent sort of a nice fascism or something. Um, <laughs> she's into all of these super right-wing people like Jürgen Elvola and so on and so on. She, she goes to these enormously right-wing congresses and meetings. She meets Rando. She meets, uh, what's his name, Greg Johnson. It's... It's crystal clear what she is. She is a far-right cadre, and everybody agrees on that. It's out there, right? Mm -hmm. What happens in 1921? In 1921, the Institut für die Wissenschaften von Menschen in Vienna, which is a very important and prestigious historical social science research institute, and gen generically very liberal, right, sort of centrist liberal, gives her a fellowship, one of its most prestigious fellowships for half a year. Now, this didn't go through. It didn't go through because a researcher in Canada saw it on social media and said, are you completely nuts? And the case was so extreme that in the wow. end they had to give it up. But we've never learned how this happened. This has become a black box, and it's absolutely scandalous, right? We never heard who was on the committee who thought that was a good idea. But even without actually knowing what happened there in detail, we know one thing. There were people who were so blind and so ill-informed at this institute, where, by the way, Tim Snyder is a major fellow who is an expert on Ukraine, somehow, <laughs> that she ended up almost being given the scholarship. Wow. So that makes you wonder how many people in the West who talk about Ukraine do not understand who they're dealing with, although it's very, very, very clear. You find it in 
you know, you can find it from the Sufan Center, you have reports from ProPublica, you have people like Kuzmenko, you have Kolbon. It's not that nobody writes about this, right? We, the information is out there, even in English. It's right. that some people don't seem to care. Because they don't want, yeah. They don't it's, it's, well, it's like there's bigger geopolitical ambitions here that are more are seen as like more important, right? Than any of these small details. So, and you know, it's either like just it's intentional blindness. Like I think there's a there's something else I think which is more psychological. I mean, I'm speculating, right? Mm -hmm. But what I sometimes suspect is actually a very patronizing attitude to Ukraine, very patronizing and very unfair in a way. Which is, look, I've lived in Ukraine altogether for, for five years. And, and I learned you, to speak Ukrainian fluently. At one point in my life, my Ukrainian was better than my Russian. And they're both pretty wow. good. So, it, you know, to the extent that my Ukrainian was crowding out my Russian, I went to Moscow, I started talking Ukrainian to people, and they laughed at me, whatever. So I was sort of as embedded in Ukraine as you could be as somebody not from Ukraine, clearly, mm -hmm. right? I don't want to overstate the case. Um, I also lived all this time in the center of national identity in Ukraine, which is Lviv, right? Mm. Um, and I, so I got a big a sense of this, and I, I often had arguments, even at that time, sometimes in Ukrainian, I was publishing texts that some Ukrainians didn't like at all. But what I never did, and what I think some of these people are doing is, I didn't look down on Ukrainians, and basically pat them on the head and say, oh, you don't really understand this sort of stuff yet. So your right-wing nationalism is excusable. You'll get there, mm -hmm. right? You just need to develop a little more. And I do think that this is happening with some liberals and centrists who yeah. think they're cutting Ukraine slack by giving a very conscious, very savvy, very internationally savvy far-right cadre, like, for instance, Semenyaka, a fellowship. It has nothing to do with helping Ukraine. It has something to do with helping the far-right to do damage to Ukraine, right? So I wanted to ask you to elaborate a bit on 2014 in terms of, mm. like, how did the 2014 coup in UK Ukraine contribute to this rise of this sort of right-wing nationalist sentiment and revisionist history where we see the glorification of these past nationalist figures. You mentioned the early 2000s, but it does seem like 2014 was a really essential year uh, in terms of understanding the right-wing turn. Uh, and especially, especially when we think about like the Azov Battalion gaining more prominence and then being folded into state, in state institution. Yes. So, look, uh, 2014, right, the, the fall of, of the Yanukovych government uh, and then its replacement by, by, you know, revolutionaries, whatever you call them, by new people, right? Yeah. Um, I, I still don't know what to call it. Um, I think it's a lot of things at the same time. I should say that, you know, um, Yanukovych really did run a horrible type of, of thing. He was he was legitimately elected in 2010. In that sense, getting rid of him in this manner was a coup. Okay. On the other hand, uh, since 2010, and this was very expectable if you knew where he was coming from, he had abused his power terribly, right? 
Um, and so there was also, there were real revolutionary impulses there, right? They were unevenly spread. They, they weren't the same in all parts of Ukraine. Some of it was then instrumentalized and so on and so on. The geopolitics came in, say, Victoria Newland <laughs> and similar um, unhelpful forces. But uh, my, my concern is to not reduce it to a coup, right? I think mm. this is a very complicated event where we, we will struggle with giving it a good name for a long time. <laughs> But okay, you have this. You have this event, right? And you're absolutely right uh, that um, it promotes the Ukrainian far right to a new level, right? I think that that's one of these leaps they take, and I think it does so in two ways, two main ways. Of course, it's all very complicated, but there are two big things here. One is they play um, an important role during the standoff with the Yanukovych regime. Right. Um, it has often been pointed out that they do not either constitute the majority of protesters. That's probably true, absolutely, or simply dominate the process. That's also true. But I would argue, and and in in fact, I've come to be more adamant about this, that they play a very important role in the sense that they radicalize the protests on the protester side. The regime goes violent, that's absolutely true, with its special police forces and so on, and with sort of militia types called the Titushki, but the protesters go violent as well, right? And that, mm. in a way, that didn't happen in 2004, 2005, which is a direct comparison. And this turn to a much more violent approach to attacking the regime, that has a lot to do with the far right pushing its line during the protests and becoming very important precisely, it's a feedback. The more violent the process gets, the more it, the, the far right becomes important to the revolutionary or you know resisting or protesting side, right? right? And they're not innocent in this. They also want this, right? It's not a simple story of, oh, Yanukovych sent in the special police forces, they beat everybody up and therefore, the others had to strike back. Yes, that right. also happens. But there also is a very conscious policy on the far right of using this, right, to get to a darker place. And I say dark deliberately because at the time, there is a very naive piece by Anne Applebaum, <laughs> published in Newsweek or whatever, I can't remember, where she literally says that this is, the orange revolution, the color revolutions are going dark or black now. And oh, she's gosh. happy. She's happy. She doesn't understand that this is a very bad thing with a lot of right. terrible consequences. And this is what happens. And the far right promotes it and it profits from it. Mm. I wouldn't say the far right is alone in doing this. Yanukovych is the other pole, right? They sort of do this with each other. But in the end, the far right plays an important role and it wants to do this. Now, when there is second stage, when there is an agreement, the last exit ramp, right, before things get even worse, happened, I think, 21st of February, which is when several European politicians come in and negotiate a deal. It's already very late in the day. A lot of people have died. It's all very tragic. But they negotiate a deal with Yanukovych, and Yanukovych basically says, well, it will still take half a year or something, but, you know, I leave and we have a transition process and so on. At that point, the far right is instrumental in scuppering the deal on the side of the protesters, which is horrible. Now, again, Yanukovych as well 
um, essentially just absconds, right? And there have been endless discussions of who's more to blame. Is Yanukovych fleeing because he feels so threatened by the far right or blah, blah, blah. Not the most important question. The, the key point is at least two forces don't really want to go through with the deal. And one of them is the far right part of the protesters. And that is a great responsibility because it was the last offering. Mm-hmm. Now, then you get to another situation where now you have this new regime, whatever you call it. Yanukovych is on the run, goes to Russia, and Russia begins to act very aggressively. So it takes Crimea and then it begins to sort of help its separatist proxies, whatever you call them, in regions in Donbass in the very east of Ukraine. And that, in turn, is an enormous boost for the far right. And what happens here is very well known. At that point, the Ukrainian military is very different from now. Um, It's extremely weak. It's disorganized. It's been weakened by years of corruption. It's demoralized. And it can't really fight back. And so what the new regime does, fatally, I think, is they rely on these volunteer units. Now, not all volunteer units are necessarily far right, but some very important ones are very far right, right? Mm-hmm. And Azov is precisely one of those. It's not the only ones, one of those. But it, that's where Azov then gets its second big kick. And since then, you know, Azov has profited from this long conflict enormously. And that is true for the far right in general. In one sense, because they got access to resources, because they got to colonize as part of the state, because uh, the other thing is that they got to actually shape discourses in Ukraine. And this might be the most important one. Um, That's something where I want to get back to (laughs) Olena Semenyaka, who thankfully has been extremely clear in an interview where she actually, she was asked, you know, by journalists, well, what, what is your strategy here? And this was 2021, it's quite recent. And she said, our strategy is a struggle for cultural hegemony. We are trying basically, I'm now I'm rephrasing, but these were her terms. We are trying to shift the frame. We are trying to make people, we are trying to, we would say, normalize and legitimize far-right politics in Ukraine. And this is something that the far-right in Ukraine has again done extremely deliberately and self-awarely, right? They're absolutely not naive about this. And I think that that's probably maybe what makes them a more dangerous far right than maybe other European far rights, where they do have this kind of cultural hegemony um, over society. And I think, you you know, a lot of their investment in like having youth wings or being in charge of culture yeah. in various ways is, is a part of that. And it, and it it, it is really disturbing. And I, I wanted to ask you, you know, another one of the things that Russia will say is that, um, or not, maybe not, I don't know if I've heard the Russians say it, they probably have, but I like some of their defenders will say, is that this is a coup government. They'll call the yeah. Ukrainian government a coup government, which I, I think is absolutely, it's just not right to say. You could have said that maybe it would have worked, you know, the previous administration, but Zelensky mm-hmm. was elected. Um, mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, as you know, he was elected on this very pro-peace platform. You know, he was speaking Russian uh, openly, which was seen as like a gesture of peace. Uh, and and uh, and so I guess that with that said, now you see a very different Zelensky, a one hmm. that is on the international stage, you know, dismissing the role of the far right. I'm curious, though, how much pressure was Zelensky under from nationalists, which isn't talked about very much because mm-hmm. we've seen like quotations from these right wingers 
in the past years about Zelensky threatening, literally making threats to his life. Like we're going Mm -hmm. to lynch you Mm -hmm. if you make peace with Russia. So, you know, in that case, like, is this why he didn't abide by Minsk? I know there's mm-hmm. also international factors here, perhaps the role of the U.S. in, in encouraging him to go one way or another with peace with Russia. But how much of a factor has the far right been in pushing Zelensky to have more of an aggressive anti-peace stance? You know, obviously, I, I'm not privy to, you know, I'm, I don't know Zelensky personally, and I'm not privy to <laughs> how he works with his advisors. I think he has very important influential advisors who also are very interesting to look at. But, you know, if you think about it, right, what, what could it have been? Uh, it's, it's absolutely true, as you point out, that when he comes in and, and he really scores this fantastic electoral victory, what is it, 78, 71% or something, he also evenly spread, which is very important, mostly evenly spread, like he succeeds everywhere in Ukraine, center, east, west, whatever, you know, I think there are two regions in the far west that don't like him, right? Hmm. So Zelensky has an unbelievable mandate when he comes in, I think, in 2019, right, or 2020, I can't. And then, and he talks. He's remember when he when he runs his election campaign. One thing he's he's criticized very often for is that he isn't very specific about what he wants to do, and that's absolutely true. It's a very smart move, I think he makes. Right? He he runs an election on vague promises, and his enemies, of course, don't like this. And blah, 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 but hey, it works. One thing, and this is even more interesting. One thing, the one thing, actually, the one thing he's specific about is the thing you said where he says, I would literally at one point, he says, I would go on my knees. Imagine I would go on my knees in front of Putin just so that we get to talk about peace and a compromise, right? This is how far he goes. This is how he wins moreover. So there is a majority that goes with that, right? At least is ready to accept that. And then we come to this point that it's very clear that Zelensky does not implement this policy. That's absolutely clear. We could talk about the details, but we don't need to. I mean, there's consensus. That's not what Zelensky does once he's in power. Right. And now the question, why? I think the far right does play a role. And I think that um, the sense of being threatened politically, right? You could be challenged in all sorts of ways. Um, but also actually being threatened personally, because it's mm-hmm. far right, and this is something very important, precisely in this period, is also developing a very aggressive brand of street politics, right? And it's very it's very brutal, it's violent, the victims, uh, people die, right? Roma are killed in these street politics in 2018, for instance. So this is serious stuff, right? You attack LGBTQ demonstrations or parades, you attack lectures about the Holocaust. This is all stuff that actually happened. You attack media you don't like, you you storm government buildings when there's something that happening that you don't like locally and sometimes even in Kiev. The far right demonstrates we are ready to grab a baseball bat and more and more, also knives and even firearms and deal with problems that way. And they do this very deliberately and in their terms, unfortunately, with some success. So the way in which they begin to threaten everybody around them is very real. Now, of course, you can ask, well, Zelensky is the president, obviously has security, right? I mean, there's a whole state apparatus there to, among other things, protect the president. True enough, true enough. 
but could he have pers felt personally threatened as well? Now, here's a twist to that story. If you look at the way Zelensky behaves, I know there's a lot of showmanship, and I don't hold that against him. Why not? Everybody uses their own resources. Showmanship is part of politics in many countries. But my sense is that he's not a personally cowardly person. I think he's personally actually courageous, right? So that makes me think, how far could they have impressed him by this, by this remote possibility that we might actually come and assassinate you? I'm not sure that actually worked with him. But the political, the political pressure, you have to consider that it's not simply the far right. It is also mainstream parties, such as his old opponent, Petro Poroshenko, who was by no means gone from politics, who have shifted very clearly to the right. Right? This is what happens in the struggle for hegemony. If the far right pushes everybody more to the right, mainstream parties, mainstream parties will also adopt far right positions right, to compete electorally and in general, for the population right. and its allegiances. So Zelensky may very well have been afraid of what happens if I really make a deal, if I go through with Minsk too, and Donetsk or these parts, not Donetsk, these parts of Donbass get a certain type of autonomy and special rights and the Russian language and all of this, and it gives my opponents this enormously efficient cudgel to go after me as the man who sold out, who sold mm. out true Ukrainian interest to the Russians. And what is interesting here, my last point is that when you look at what happens in the media around Zelensky before this war, in late 2021, he's under fire all the time. And he isn't just under fire from extremists. He's under fire from the major talk show hosts in Ukraine. Everybody is against him. And everybody is lining up. Schuster, Gordon, all these people uh, are lining up and putting pressure on him as, you know, we don't trust you. We don't know. Maybe you're going to sell out. That's basically what's happening to him at this time. So even electoral calculus alone may have been enough to make to have made him shy away from actually pursuing Minsk II. The other thing about Minsk II, of course, is we should add this, it's not an easy way to go. Because when Minsk II was agreed on in February 2015, it basically had Western support, right? It had the Ukrainian government in Kiev, it had the separatists on board, and in a way it had Russia on board. Although Russia mm -hmm. always played a very weird game about it, but essentially they were there. Nobody, nobody, I've really looked into this very carefully, nobody treated Minsk too well. Nobody. Now, if somebody pushed me against the wall and said, who is most to blame for not <laughs> making Minsk too coming true, I would still say Kiev. In the end, Kiev. But nobody treated it in good faith. Nobody, mm -hmm. unfortunately. So if you're in Zelensky's position and you want to make it come true against your own critics and potential opposition and real opposition, you also look at your potential partners and they're sort of very difficult to work with, right? Yeah, I do actually want to get, get to the Russians, but first I wanted to ask you to comment on this. Um, I'm just going to quote this from a Washington Post article. Uh, it's about the kind of uh, threat this is presenting globally as people on the far right around the world are attracted to this conflict. And the, the Washington Post mm -hmm. writes, for neo-Nazis and white supremacists, Ukraine could become their version of what Afghanistan was for the jihadi movement in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. And I raise that because I wanted to ask you, is the invasion, is the Russian invasion of Ukraine a boon to the far right in Europe, the far right globally? Do you see this 
considering that weapons have flooded the country and also foreign fighters, Mm -hmm. do you see this as potentially uh, creating a situation where it strengthens the far right well into the future, not just in Ukraine, but beyond? Well, the short answer, my short answer would be yes. Yes. Mm. Now, you know, the unexpected can always happen. You never know. But as far as one can, you know, sort of predict things or try to predict, yes. I think the Russian invasion, um, I would, I have to say it, it's it's a war of aggression in my book, as much as what Tony Blair and George W. Bush did to Iraq in 2003. I think in that respect, those two are very comparable. We are dealing with wars of aggression, right? But so this war of aggression on the Russian side has created a situation which the far right internationally can profit from, definitely. Now, the thing is um, that one should add, right? The argument that Ukraine was acquiring a special position in sort of the international networks of the far right is older than the war. Uh, It's been made before. It was made in a long report, again, by um, the Sufan Center, right? Um, And even if there are difficulties with the details and people always make mistakes and then others pray on that, but I think they were right. I think they were right. Ukraine, because of the efforts, the very deliberate efforts of the Ukrainian far right, and because of interest coming in from North America, from the USA, from Canada, from Britain, from France, from Italy, um, you name Germany, definitely. Ukraine, even before the war, this happened before this war. Okay, there was another war, but before the large-scale invasion of February, right? This happened before. Ukraine was already turning very clearly into a special place in the international far right, right? And again, I'm quoting Colborn's interview here, which he gave somewhere I think he's absolutely right saying that there is something like a global far-right revival that we are living through, unfortunately. And what has happened in Ukraine and is happening in Ukraine is part of that. I would add, and I think he would say that too, but I don't want to sort of summarize for him, but also Ukraine has played a special role in that. Now, I want to be clear about one thing. This is not an argument about somehow Ukrainians being worse than other people. Of course, it's sometimes misrepresented as that, and then people feel offended and all that stuff. No, it simply is that certain political, geopolitical circumstances in Ukraine in this period have worked out in such a way that this niche opened up for its national far right. And then the second factor was that its national far right has an elite, in quotation marks, that very much understands the value of connecting internationally absolutely loves international networking. That's why you see, for instance, the opening of a special club in one of the best locations in Kiev, right on Maidan, there's a right in the center of, of town, where you then have like this mixed martial arts event with international guests and these lectures with international guests. Mixed martial arts are a huge part of the story. The far right exploits them, not only in Ukraine, but also in Ukraine, very, very much as as, as something to, to actually convey the program and the ideology with, right? Um, you have uh, music festivals, uh, Asgard Rai, or Asgard Rai, which has by now, I think, take place six or five times in Ukraine, international, really literally neo-Nazi music festivals, right, where you get this certain, it's a particular type of black metal that is associated with the neo-Nazi scene. Right. 
um, you have outreach by traveling to these people, to making links with um, French groups in Paris or with Casa Pound, which has, I think, by now been forbidden in Italy. The promises, once the promises were made in 1990, during the negotiations over the reunification, unification, whatever you call it, of East and West Germany, right? And there's this insane line among some Western scholars, even, which I really can't understand how they do that, where they basically say, well, well, but it was just sort of oral promises, but they were noted down and didn't do a formal agreement. And so that's not really counting. And also at the time, that's what they argue, the Warsaw Pact was still there. So how could we possibly have guaranteed anything apart from East Germany? Now, this is a completely insane logic, right? So Gorbachev, the Soviet leadership then, looks at the West saying, we will not go one inch to the East. Those were the terms, right? Used by Baker then, American Foreign Secretary or Secretary of State. And of course the Russians think, oh, that means they're not going to go into former East Germany, but maybe they go into Poland and be okay with that. No, it means the opposite. Because right. the Warsaw Pact was still there, the Soviets of course weren't even thinking about NATO ever going into Poland or the Baltics, which by that time were still, even if shakily, parts of the Soviet Union. So that's mm -hmm. one. The promise of 1990 was real and it mattered and it implied that NATO would not go east at period, you know. The, then there was a second promise in 1993 and almost nobody ever talks about this, which is Warren Christopher going to Yeltsin at this time and saying, look, we have this partnership for peace program. It's sort of NATO light for people in the east of Europe who used to be in your sphere of influence. Are you okay with that? And Yeltsin basically says, if I must, and I must, I'm okay, but you need to promise me that this is it. No full membership, only partnership for peace. And within a few years, and they promise, Christopher promises, and within a few years, the Clinton administration goes decides to go back on that deal, which is very, very clear. Now you get people, sorry, I have to say this as well, who have this other really brilliant argument, which is NATO never promised. Oh yeah, it's the Russians' problem that two who U.S. secretaries of state went to the Russians and presumed to talk for NATO? I mean, imagine, you are the Russian leadership and the Americans come to you, the secretary of state, and says, I can tell you what NATO will and will not do. Your response is because you're a realist and you understand how NATO works. Yeah, well, that's true. You can because you lead NATO, right? Right. So now right. you get brilliant brains like NATO General <laughs> Secretary Stoltenberg going, NATO never promised. Yeah, well, you know what? The Americans promised and that was bad enough. And that is your problem. That is the yeah. West's problem, not the right. Russians' problem. So we are getting to, to logic here when these promises are denied that I would call, it's a logic of an ambulance chasing lawyer. It's this, <laughs> it's this bizarre little formalistic, yeah. oh, we didn't really sign it. We just promised it. It's ridiculous. And that the Russians find that ridiculous. I've always understood. These promises were made and they were broken. Now, that doesn't justify the war. Absolutely right. not. But it's a different issue. Now, do the Russians have your second question? Is NATO potentially aggressive? Well, NATO, of course, says about itself, we are not aggressive. We are <laughs> right. an entirely defensive, defensive alliance, right? Yeah. yeah, we are defensive <laughs> alliance and we only ever defend. Now, well, ask the Libyans about this. Ask the mm. Afghans about this. We have now a record. I mean, you can look it up on the NATO website. I've done it 
of NATO-supported operations out of area that were clearly aggressive by any standards, that had nothing to do with defending anybody who had been attacked within the North Atlantic area. Nothing right. at all. So that's point one. The second point, of course, is that it's a fundamental tenet and it makes sense of thinking about security that the other side won't simply believe you. And that makes sense, you know? I mean, the Soviets during the Cold War said we are peace-loving power, right? Did we still, did the West arm itself against the Soviets? Oh, yes, a lot. Mm. And nobody said in the West, yeah, but the Soviets say they're peace-loving, so we can't potentially not believe them. Of course, Moscow doesn't believe NATO when <laughs> NATO says we would never do anything aggressive because that's not what governments do. And to right. ask Moscow to just believe NATO, if you do that, you betray that you're a complete fool, in my view, or that you're deeply dishonest. This is not how due diligence in security works. And that due diligence, we have to also give the Russians. They have a right to practice that independent of what sort of political system they have, independent of whether we like them or not, that's a different issue. None of this, again, coming back to my initial point, Putin should never have launched this horrible aggression. And by the way, it will be terribly self-defeating for Russia. At least that's very likely. But again, it, it's simply true that the West also messed up horribly. Not to speak, of course, last point, the famous open door. What did we do with the famous open door, right? Basically, in 2008, in Bucharest, the leaders of NATO came together, and the Americans, and I think the British, but the Americans, of course, were the ones who counted, said, we want to offer membership, meaning a membership action plan, to Georgia and Ukraine. The French and the Germans, as always, a little more sort of, you know, careful <laughs> and rightly so, but like, eh, we don't like the idea. But also, as always, the Europeans did the usual opportunism, right? It, NATO isn't a place where the Europeans just say no. NATO is a place where the Europeans at most say, look, could we do this a little differently? So what happens is they come out with this idiotic compromise and they promise Georgia and Ukraine membership, but sometime in the future. Yeah. <laughs> result, which means you expose them to Russian mm -hmm. retaliatory action. This is what this means. It's completely irresponsible. First result, Saakashvili, leader of Georgia then, misunderstands the situation completely and actually initiates a war with Russia, which he loses. Right. And the Russians, yeah. of course, take the opportunity for which they have waited most likely and settle accounts with him and make it clear mm -hmm. to NATO, that's what we do if you promise membership. And who is the second country that has now been trapped by this horrible open door policy is Ukraine. And right. what do we see now? Now we see the Ukrainian leadership, after all of this horrible slaughter is happening, saying, oh, yeah, maybe we don't need NATO. <laughs> yeah, well, listen, this could have been said in December. And even right. better, we get people in the Western media, say Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, which is sort of the conservative centrist paper of record in Germany, and that's why I have to read it, even if it hurts. <laughs> and you get these security experts who, who are always like, rah, 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 NATO, NATO, NATO. And suddenly they also say, well, yeah, maybe that NATO thing, maybe we could let go of that for Ukraine, actually. <laughs> yeah, already, really, you, you've noticed. The, it's it gets even worse. We, we had one thing you can't say about the Russians, one thing you really can't say. And I, again, it's not an excuse for what Putin has done. But they did warn us. They did warn us. This Repeatedly. whole discourse of... 
of Putin is so inscrutable. You never know what he's going to do. Bullshit. He told you. <laughs> I cannot say that, but it's total nonsense. It's yes. total nonsense because since December, the Russians have really come out. I've read all of these documents and said very clearly, this is what we want. This is what we need. And if this doesn't happen, they threatened very clearly military action. Now, you might say they shouldn't have done that. Maybe. But the point is, we knew. And yeah. we made a decision in the West, and this mainly came, I think, out of the United States again, because it does call the shots, to say we run that risk. We run that risk, right? And and Ukraine is the country that is now suffering for all of these blunders. Right. Yeah, at the end of the day, they're like sacrifice. It's not the U.S. that's hurting necessarily. It's the Ukrainians that, I mean, their country is being destroyed. Uh, they're, they're, being, they're like a sacrificial lamb for this insane policy. But given everything you did say, and I do agree with you about this war not being the answer, what alternatives did Putin have to invading Ukraine if he was right about these broken promises? And the reason I ask you that is because mm. I've been asked that and then I don't know how to answer the question. Yeah. <laughs> so what alternatives were there besides war for Russia? You know, one is concrete, one is concrete, um, which is right on the eve of the war. And I was I was following this very, very much in detail at that time because I was very interested in it also, but, but I hoped for it. You know, I was emotionally invested, if you want. Right on the eve of the war, the president of France, Macron, was mm -hmm. repeatedly putting himself actually a little bit on the line in the West and got getting some serious flack for trying to open the door to negotiations. And, and this was really going on until the very last minute, until Putin suddenly came out and said, first of all, I'm going to take these two, um, we're not going to take, but we're going to recognize officially these two separatist republics. And then very quickly, within one or two days, uh, also said, okay, and by the way, we also start this, this invasion, which they call... Uh, what do they call it? A political um, military special, operation. Special yeah. military operation. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So there was the Macron initiative. It was very real. I don't know if it could have worked, mm. but it might not have worked. It might not have worked because maybe the Russians wouldn't have been um, cooperative enough. Maybe the Ukrainians wouldn't have been cooperative enough. Maybe the, the Americans would have succeed, successfully torpedoed it. But from outside, at least, it does look as if that hadn't been exhausted. Right, that would be my most concrete point. That should have been continued, even with bad chances. The second point I would make is, is much less concrete. Right, this comes much more from my general thinking as a historian. I, you know, I do think that sometimes um, a state leadership, a political leadership, has to has to understand that you 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 need to you need to take a loss. Right, uh, before you before you resort to something that is A, incredibly brutal, and it is incredibly brutal, and, and B, also unbelievably risky, right? I mean, this is yeah. why so many people didn't believe they would do it, because not because they were all naive thinking, oh, the Russians are too nice, but because why would they commit suicide, right? Why yeah. would they run this risk? Before you do something like that, maybe sometimes you just have to climb down, right? And, and it might cost you something, it might be hard, but what this means in concrete terms, it's not just a moral term. It also means you make time work for yourself again. You know, if you if you end a problem by smashing everything, then you also obliterate the possibility that maybe in half a year this is going to look different. Maybe yeah. in one year this is going to look different again. Maybe the better tactic is to wait 
and be patient. So, you know, what, what I really miss a lot and, and in, in Russian behavior very much like now, but also in the West is, you know, I grew up in the at the end of the Cold War. I, I still have a very vivid memory of the 80s. And what I think was different was that there was some sense of patience and, um, as it were, a healthy sort of um, restraint. You you didn't want to do too radical things, right? You didn't want to do things that would frighten you yourself. Yeah. And what what Putin has done is to me, among other things, for many reasons, it's of course, there's a terrible human aspect here, but also in political terms, it's so shocking because honestly, it was predictable that this could, from the Russian perspective, by their terms, go horribly, horribly wrong. Right. Now, we right. don't know yet what, what will happen in the end, but I'm pretty sure that a lot of things have already gone very wrong for Russia, right? Yeah. And I, people actually get really, depending on like where they stand on this issue, people have really bought into their own propaganda bubble. Um, if they mm. want the Russians to win, they're only consuming people who are saying the Russians are winning. They're, anybody who suggests otherwise is crazy. The Russians are smart. They know what they're doing. And then, of course, the other side of that is, you know, you're in your pro-Ukraine propaganda bubble. The Ukrainians are winning. They're pushing the Russian invaders out. They're going to succeed. You know, wear your blue and yellow and support Ukraine and they're going to win. And at the end of the day, you know, I don't, I don't think anyone wins in this situation. Not really. Uh, no, yeah. I mean, even if no matter who wins militarily, which no. I mean, still does seem like it just based on who has more power would be the Russians. Um, you know, Russia's going to be under, I mean, these sanctions aren't going to go away. Uh, Russia's economy mm. is just going to be put through the meat grinder. It kind of already is. I, and it's just really sad to watch. And also, of course, the ripple effects on the rest of the world. You know, I'm speaking to you from Lebanon and, you know, it's mm. one of many countries in the global South that is already dealing with the negative consequences yes. of this war because of fuel and fertilizer needs that and aren't food. going to be and met. Wheat. Yeah, it's going to lead to food yeah. shortages. I mean, yeah. wheat shortages, it's it's devastating, no. yeah, um, it the, the results of this war. But that said, it, you know, I do appreciate your expertise here too because it is important that to, to also say like when we're not on the ground to see, so we don't know how things are going. Yeah. Um, but it can't be going well for anyone. That said, you know, I do I do appreciate your time. And I just have a couple more questions for you, actually related to Germany, just because you are from mm -hmm. Germany. So it would be a shame not to get your your perspective on this. But, you know, how do you explain the German about face on policy and the sort of German embrace of an increased militaristic rhetoric, as well as this increased military budget? Um you know, before the invasion, Germany was very much being tarnished in the Western press, particularly the U.S. press, no. because they were refusing they were refusing to mm -hmm. uh, to cancel Nord Stream two, and they were taking a, a more new maybe neutral is not the right word, but mm -hmm. a more no. more middle of the ground line. So how do you more explain moderate. that about face? Yeah, more moderate line. So how yeah. do you explain that very dramatic change? Yeah, you know, I think it was. I'm not sure it's really the right term I'm using here, but but I'm trying. I think it was sort of a tipping point, uh, straw that broke the camel's back situation in, in, in the German public and in German politics. Um, Germany has um, very uh, ambivalent, to generalize, relationship towards Russia. And um, there, there's some naive admiration, there is 
um, there are prejudices of the nastiest kind as well. Um, but the relationship is important, right? Russia matters in German minds, mm. as you would expect. <laughs> and um, for a long time, the 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 way that this would shape politics was was sort of suspended uh, between people who, on the whole, look to a cooperative relationship, not necessarily naive, uh, not necessarily even very friendly, but cooperative. And people who wanted to strike a much more sort of neo-Cold War tone again, right? Mm. And this began to shift seriously in 2014 when Russia took Crimea. That was, again, one moment in which this, this, the party of those who liked the cooperation really lost ground in German politics and especially in the German public sphere, right? But you had Merkel. Uh, you had, as you pointed out, Nord Stream 2 was, was like a, a litmus test issue, and they stuck to it, right? So in the end, uh, in terms of politics, Germany went along with sanctions, went along opposing Russia on Ukraine. But as you, as you rightly put it, there was a moderate element, and even a moderating element, which I think was extremely valuable, right? The, the Germans have gotten a lot of nastiness for this. But I really don't think they deserved that. I think that was something very productive. And although I'm not a fan of Merkel in general, I'm not a fan of conservatives in general, I miss this about her. <laughs> but, yeah. um, but then you got this new coalition coming in, which is an unrelated event, right? But it happened. And you have to understand that the Green Party, which plays a large role in this coalition, which has the, the Ministry of Economics, which is very important now, and which has the Foreign Ministry, is more NATO than, than almost anything else in Germany. This is strange because the Green Party in Germany came out of pacifism in part, right? They came out of Cold War pacifism, uh, but that has totally changed, right? The Green Party in Germany is now NATO green, olive green, <laughs> camouflage green. NATO I'm sorry, green. but that's what it is. <laughs> um, and why that happened is another very complicated story and I think has very many political, no, not generational and psychological yeah. um, uh, components, but we can't go into that. And then you had the Social Democrats. And the Social Democrats, Scholz, at, at the Chancellor, were keep, kept sitting on the fence. And this is why Germany got all this recent trash talk again, right? And what broke this stalemate, right, this, oh, this constant sort of wrestling of these two positions, what broke the stalemate was, was the Russian attack. And once mm -hmm. again, you really can't see how anybody in Moscow can think this is a good idea. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it is actually incredible because before the invasion, the Americans looked so stupid because they kept, they kept, remember, they were predicting, oh, yeah. the Russians are going to invade at 2 a.m. on this day. And then it wouldn't happen. The Germans were like rolling their eyes at the Americans. The French were. Uh, and then the invasion just undid sort of all of that. I wouldn't say support, but maybe the, all of that space to maybe have a little, uh, of a moderate tone with the Russians. Like that's all just vanished overnight yeah. and now NATO. The Russians have, yeah. have dealt a death blow to any attempt to be differentiated moderate now. I mean, I'm yeah. still trying, but to be realistic, the public yeah. sphere in the West now uh, has gone completely gung-ho and will remain right. so for a while. And and really it, it happened because the Russians attacked. And and I agree with you, if they hadn't attacked, it would have been very different. Look, yeah. the thing about Putin is he's sometimes seen or presented as his master strategist. 
Putin has made terrible mistakes in his career. This is not the first one, right? And why shouldn't he? He's a human being. But what I think is is special about this one, and this is, again, I'm speculating. I don't know this. But I have a suspicion that the Putin that is that we have now is not the same Putin as, say, 2004, 2008, even 2010. That what we are seeing now is a man who has had far too much power for far too long and who may very well be um, surrounded by opportunists and people who strive to tell him what he wants to hear most of the time. Right. I know that this is also something that American intelligence has now discovered, so I, I don't <laughs> like saying more or less the same thing as the CIA. Well, but no, but look, there, there but is a truth to that, yeah. Speaking, this is what, what can very easily happen with people like Putin. Of and course. my... My my sense is that he made this terrible mistake, and there are signs in how he behaved in the first days. He made this terrible mistake because he completely underestimated the Ukrainian resistance, and he mm. thought he could finish this in like two or three days and have this striking success um, on his terms. And none of this has worked. Right. I think the only thing that you could, I, I know I agree with what you're saying. And I think that 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 is absolutely true. I mean, when you have a situation or when you have like a governing apparatus that kind of, you know, I, I get I hate to use these terms because it does sound very like this is what America says. <laughs> but when you have a governing apparatus that becomes, you know, a course, sort of strongman figure who gains more and more power, that sort of inner circle becomes smaller and smaller. And you will do you end up surrounded by people who just say yes to you rather than challenge what you might want to do or what you're saying. And if people are telling you, yes, when it's a terrible idea, something like this could happen. And the other, you know, the one thing I will say that the Russians uh, or whoever made this decision uh, specifically may have done something good for themselves is that they used very vague terms for why they were going in Ukraine so that they can shift the goalposts, you know, so that if they didn't succeed in five days or two weeks, or now it's dragged on for a month, they can kind of like use terms like demilitarization and denazification in whatever the way they want. That can mean anything. You know what I mean? That's like maybe the only way to save, to save their, you know, to save themselves in front of their population at the end of the day, if this drags on is whenever they decide to say, okay, enough is enough. We yeah. achieved our goals. The goals are just so vague that you can say that anytime. Yeah. You got um, very contradictory signals, but, but there is shifting of goalposts. Definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Whether but, but, that but, will be enough to now find a way out. That's a different question, right? right? But right, it's happening. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I One more question, just very briefly about Germany. I'm curious, do you worry about a more militarized Germany? Because, you know, I mean, historically speaking, <laughs> having a militarized Germany has been negative uh, for Europe. And of course, we're not in the same time period as like the 1930s or 1940s. Uh, but it is a question. Is a more militarized Germany something to be concerned about? Yeah, you know, look, large-scale shifts like this work themselves out over sometimes several generations easily. So I think people who look at Germany now and say, oh, this is sort of a liberal democratic with all its flaws, place. So what if they have a bigger army? It's fine. Um, I think that's very naive because mm. you might look at a Germany in 50 years that is very different and still has a very big army, right? And you could argue that, when 1871 rolled around and Germany got together for the first time as a German empire, it was also not immediately obvious that this could lead to 1914, right? You would have had to get in incredibly good intuition, right? <laughs> so um, 
I think this is an open-ended question. I think it's naive to assume that a shift like this is necessarily harmless. That would be very naive. Um, my my other my other idea about this, you know, that that comes to mind to me is that, look, it may be a healthier thing. And and again, I'm very much guessing here, and I might be absolutely wrong and not understand the unintended consequences mm. of what I'm suggesting. But it may be a healthier thing if Europe finally learned to stand on its own feet in terms of defense, not Germany, Europe, and Germany as part of that. Mm -hmm. But that would take a big revision of the relationship with the United States. Personally, you know, call me a goalist, but I would like to see a Europe that can cooperate with the United States, but is not dependent on them anymore. I think it's an anomaly that Europe stays defense dependent on the United States. Now, the flip side of that is, of course, what happens if Europe actually becomes another major military power, right? Mm -hmm. If it uses its demographic, technological, economic potential and arms itself in accordance to what it could do, which is much more than now, and then Europe becomes a dangerous place. That could also occur, right? So this, this is a very difficult thing to say. But what I'm now seeing is a world in which this really quite perverse and dated dependence of something as rich and big as Europe on the United States is producing a lot of damage. Concrete example, imagine during the run-up to this crisis, we wouldn't have had a NATO just dominated by the states, but we would have had a European and a US poll of response to the Russians. And imagine there would have been a European answer that would have been more reasonable, and they would have said, oh, you know what, let's talk about neutrality. That could have made a difference. So in an ideal scenario, a much more independent Europe, defense independent Europe, could be a force for good. Right. So in that sense, if European countries be start paying more for the defenses, I'm not necessarily against it. But of course, there are risks attached. The other thing, and this is a bit of a class issue, <laughs> but I have to say, it. look, um, I actually served in the West German army when I was here. It's simply as a, you know, not because I'm a particularly <laughs> gifted soldier. I think I'm anything but. But um, but it was obligatory and you could replace it with some sort of, of replacement service, which I didn't want to do because I was not a pacifist. I'm not a pacifist even now. So um, what I'm a little bit concerned with is in a case like Germany that you get like the middle classes very much like the Greens and the voters going, let's build an army, let's build an army, let's let's be a military power again. And nobody talks about actually reintroducing obligatory military service, which frankly, you know, people, if you want to have a bigger army, I don't think it should be just the working class grants doing the stuff for you. Frankly, then let's talk about military service for everyone, which yeah. under ideal circumstances, this doesn't always work, right? But under ideal circumstances can also be a restraining element, right? I'm afraid of a situation where countries have very powerful armies, like the US, it's a classical example, mm -hmm. and the elites don't carry any of the risk, right? right. Yeah, it's just something that a bunch of, well, especially with the U.S., which has almost no social safety net, it becomes something that a bunch yes. of poor and working class kids use yeah. so they can go to college or get yeah. like free health care because the military is the only socialized aspect of American society. Um, but there's also, of course, you know, the issue of when it comes to the U.S. taking on the role of defense of Europe, like 
it's amazing because what can you even say the U.S. has defended? Everything the U.S. has done for the last 30 years has made Europe more unstable, particularly the last 20 years. When you look at all of these military interventions in the Middle East, the U.S. doesn't bear the brunt of refugee crises. It's Europe, actually. Mm. And it ended up, you know, what, what the U.S. did in Iraq, what the U.S. did in Syria, what the U.S. did in Libya mm. ended up creating this refugee wave that actually changed the politics of Europe. Uh, yeah. quite dramatically. So it's like when we even talk about the U.S. taking on the role of defending Europe, it's like, what is it? What does that even mean? It's Is it really defending Europe? Because what the mm. U.S. did in Syria caused the, you know, and Iraq caused the rise of ISIS. And it was European cities that were getting attacked by ISIS ideologues. Not, I mean, it happened in the U.S. a couple times, but nothing compared to the many attacks that Europeans face. I'm, I'm always curious, you know, when I hear European mm. officials talk about that, like, how is the U.S. defending you? U.S. actions are actually, like, hurting you, especially with regard with what's happening in Ukraine right now. But, of course, you know, that's a conversation for another mm -hmm. day. Tariq, I, I want to leave you with any last words. Can you tell people where they can follow your work? You're, you're quite prolific on Twitter. Uh, but if you want to, you know, give anything else a shout out while you're on, please feel free to. Well, um, I sometimes write for different outlets, sometimes in German, often in English. Um, there's a German site called Macroscope, where I published one text I might publish in the future. I used to write a lot for RT, right? Dread oh. RT. Um, How could you? <laughs> I, I could very well, because I was very clear with them, and a very good editor. And I said, look, I write what I want. Um, and if it's okay for you, publish it. And if not, you don't publish it. And on that basis, we've worked until the day of the invasion. On wow. the day of the invasion, I, of course, did say, okay, listen, I mean, sorry, you know. Also because, for two reasons. First of all, because the invasion made a difference. But also because it was very clear that this, this posture of mine of saying, I really say what I want to say, and, and you are not censoring me and you're not telling me what to write, which did not happen, wouldn't work anymore, right? Russia mm -hmm. as well is now militarizing much, much more than before its public space and there's no right. room for this anymore in RT. So apart from that, it's Twitter and occasionally other things, but mostly, mostly right now it's really Twitter. Yeah, this sensorial environment is incredible. Um, I guess everything you ever, I mean, it's like there's things, there's all this work that people have done whether for RT or other outlets that, that are related to RT that's just been wiped away from various no, social media. Uh, it's just, it's horrible. I've had these discussions with people sometimes uh, in a civilized manner and sometimes people have been very uncivilized about <laughs> this. Where, you know, the, the, the basic idea is you cannot possibly write for RT at the time, right? And my response has always been, and I'm still very serious about this, if you can't write for RT, you can't write for the BBC. I'm sorry, mm -hmm. and you can't write for CNN. Um, if you look back on the record of these pillars of Western um, media in, say, the Middle East, I mean, how could you, frankly, yeah. right? I think the world in which we really live is where you can say what you want in specific places when they let you. And when they don't mm -hmm. let you, then you can't. And that's it. Exactly. So this exactly. whole idea of, of not actually interacting with what some what a person actually says and instead of interacting with the label has always struck me as completely idiotic and also very malevolent. I mean, mm -hmm. i give you one example. Um, when Putin came out before the war already and said, you know, what's happening in Donbass is genocide. 
Ati asked me, do you want to write about this? And my response was, I can write about this, but I will say it's not. <laughs> and that's what I wrote. And it's still online. I clearly explained it's not genocide. That's wrong. I also In RT, then yeah. Yeah, on RT. And they let me do it and they published it at that time. I don't think they would do it anymore. And I don't mm -hmm. think the editor who let me do this then would be able to let me do this now, right? I do think these things must have shifted. But at the time, that was perfectly possible. Uh, on another occasion, they asked me, do you want, this was in January, do you want to talk about what could happen in a potential war between Russia and Ukraine? So I wrote about this, and my prediction was um, it could be Pyrrhic victory for Russia, and this is all the damage it could do to Russia, and you shouldn't underestimate the Ukrainian resistance you would encounter. They published it, right? <laughs> At the yeah. time, this was perfectly possible. Now, probably not. But that's yeah, how it works. Who knows? Right. I mean, it's I, I will say I've I've written for RT before and I have also written for like a, a couple of times when I was allowed to somehow be in an American mainstream outlet. And it was quite a different experience. Um, I don't think that at least in a, I, I'm not familiar with European outlets so much, but in American outlets, there's a real lack of understanding of how much isn't allowed in in terms of viewpoints. Um, oh, yeah. But anyways, yeah. yeah. Anyways, all that said, all that said, I want to thank you so much for joining me for uh, for such a lengthy time to really break down uh, all of these very complex topics. And I appreciate your nuance as well, something that I think is lacking in many spaces these days. Uh, so thank you so much, Dariq. Really appreciate thank it. Thank you.